You may be seated, and I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. And while you are turning to Revelation chapter 2, I want to give you a little bit of a quiz, a little bit of a, uh, a survey here. You tell me by my descriptions what city I am referencing, okay? What city am I describing? This is one of the wealthiest cities in the country. It's known specifically for its influence, uh, its influential wealthy members. There are a lot of wealthy members, a part of it, in, involved in a huge entertainment community. Uh, this city has well-known universities, a couple of them that compete against each other academically and in sport to hold the prestigious honor of being the best university in the country. This city is also known for having many hospitals, some of the best in the world, where people will go uh, travel great distances to get there so that they can be treated. Uh, unfortunately, this city is also one of the capitals of sexual immorality in the country. It's known for its mass production of sexual immorality in various forms. It's also well known for housing any form of religious ideology. This city is okay with anything. It promotes being progressive. It promotes uh, a progressive ideology, both religiously and politically. And it's known for being a beautiful place to live. It has an enviable location because of its amazing weather year-round and because of its close access to the beach. So what city is this? This is totally Los Angeles, right? I mean, you cannot get a closer, better description of L.A. But in actuality, this is the city of Pergamum. This is, these are all descriptions taken from other commentaries of what Pergamum would have been like. It's the third city on this postal route of seven churches that John is writing to, and more specifically, Christ is writing to. And honestly, as we come to each of them, we're going to identify with a lot of things that are being said in them. When we got to the church in Ephesus, the first church, this church had doctrine and deeds, which I absolutely believe our church has, but they had lost devotion. And that's, I think, the danger for our church, for Christ Bible Church. I think it's a, a danger to lose devotion, to wage the war doctrinally, and to lose devotion for Christ. So we really found ourselves in the church in Ephesus. Then we got to the church last week and the week before in Smyrna, and this church is a heavily persecuted church, which we can't identify with yet. Uh, by God's grace and His sovereign timing, last week was the International Day of Prayer worldwide for the persecuted church, and then it was our chance to dive into the letter to the church in Smyrna, the most heavily persecuted church on this list. But we still found ourselves there, not only identifying with our brothers and sisters around the world who are being persecuted, but also identifying with the reality that we will face persecution in our lifetime to one degree or another, and it's looking like it's going to get worse uh, at a much faster rate than we would have ever imagined. So we think, well, Ephesus is for us, and then Smyrna, man, that's for us, and then we come to Pergamum, and I mean, I, I think there's no other city in these list of seven cities. In this list, there's no other city that most closely resembles Los Angeles. This is L.A. 
And so we are going to see ourselves again in this letter. This letter is decently long. It's verses 12 all the way down through 17. And so we're going to take it, Lord willing, in two parts yet again. And we're going to need to do it in two parts because, again, I believe we're going to see ourselves in this letter. I think we're going to see our church in this letter. And I think we're going to see a danger for our church. And we're going to have to ask the question, how do we not be like this church? What do we need to do? And that will be answered next week, Lord willing. What do we need to do in order to not be like them? Because the reality is, though Smyrna is a heavily persecuted church, Smyrna's thriving, right? They're growing in Revelation 2. Pergamum is not being threatened by physical persecution. There's an even greater threat that Satan wants to give to this church. And I believe it's the threat that faces us as a church especially in our context and culture. The biggest danger to Christianity is always internal, not external. We're tempted to think it's persecution, it's suffering, something like that, but the greatest threat is internal. Whether it's divisions, whether it's just laziness, whether it's a lack of devotion for Christ, or whether it's compromising. The disease of indiscriminating tolerance or compromising in morality and theology can eat away at the DNA of a church so quickly. You can't even see it necessarily from the outside, but it starts to eat away. And the church in Pergamum is tolerating false doctrine, and Jesus says, that's what you need to stop doing. So let's read these verses, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time this morning. Verse 12, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So too you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, Repent, or else I am coming quickly to you, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. Jesus, thank you for writing these words. Thank you for giving us a letter that fits into a time and space thousands of years ago, 2,000 years ago. And yet it looks exactly like Los Angeles today. God, thank you just even for the reminder, regardless of what else you teach us this morning, you have instructed us 
in the relevance of your word. It never goes out of style. It never is irrelevant or uh, not pertaining to what we're dealing with. So many people think it does not fit the culture. It needs to be changed, updated, tweaked in some way, shape, or form. But what you said 2,000 years ago fits perfectly in our church and in our culture today. So, Father, give us ears to hear as this passage exhorts us to do. Whoever has an ear, let him hear. Give us ears to hear. May we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church in Pergamum and through the church in Pergamum to us. And Holy Spirit, open our eyes so that while seeing, we actually see. Not being like the Pharisees who while seeing, they can't see. While hearing, they don't hear. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Well, by now you should know the outline, the formula for every single letter. There are seven aspects of every letter. Every letter has a greeting, a description of Christ, a declaration of what he knows, a criticism, uh, an exhortation, uh, a promise inside of it. Uh, every letter is going to have some form of exhortation to repent, a warning, repent or else. Every single letter follows these seven points. So this morning we're going to look at four, Lord willing, we'll look at the greeting to this church, we'll look at the description of Jesus, we'll look at a declaration of what he knows and a criticism against the church. Next week, Lord willing, we'll get to the warning, the exhortation, and the promise. First, a greeting. The greeting, again, verse 12, is to the angel of the church in Pergamum. So again, writing to a city in Asia Minor. It's about 100 miles north of Ephesus, and Smyrna's right in the middle. So 50 miles north of Ephesus is Smyrna, 50 miles north of Smyrna is Pergamum. Today in, in Turkey, uh, there's a Turkish city named Bergama, and Bergama is where Pergamum was located. We don't have a record uh, biblically of the church in Pergamum being founded. Acts uh, gives us uh, one of Paul's missionary journeys where he goes through the region, but it doesn't describe him planting a church there. Probably sometime around uh, the time of the planting of the church in Ephesus was the planting of the church in Pergamum. We don't know, but we do know a little bit of, of history about Pergamum and if you're not a history buff, forgive me. We need to go through a little bit of history here. If you are, you're going to enjoy this. But if you're not, I would plead with you to not tune out because there are aspects inside of the history of Pergamum that absolutely are relevant and pertain to this letter. We won't understand the letter and what Jesus is saying if we don't understand what happened. So, Pergamum was Asia's capital since 133 BC when the last king of Pergamum willed the city to Rome. You can take the city. And then Rome appointed Pergamum as the seat of governmental power in all of Asia Minor. So it had been about 250 years for Pergamum to exist as a Roman city when John's writing, at the time of John's writing. Other than Rome itself, Pergamum is the most influential city in the entire Roman Empire the most uh, influential, strongest base of an imperial force in the whole of the Roman Empire, second to Rome. It's the first city in Asia Minor to actually build a temple in honor of Rome and Caesar in 29 BC. And because it was so influential, Pergamum was given something called the right of the sword, which just means they were able to enact capital punishment. They didn't have to send anybody to Rome to be executed. They could do it right then and there in Pergamum. They had the right of the sword. And you're going to need to know that because Jesus is going to say, yeah, your city has the right of the sword, but I hold the double-edged sword in my hand. 
had a theater that sat over 10,000 people, whereas Smyrna was a smaller city, Pergamum was a very large and prominent one. And whereas Smyrna was known for its business, Pergamum was known for its education. In fact, it had the largest medical school in all of the Roman Empire in the city of Pergamum. It also had the world's, the world's second largest library. The first largest is Alexandria. The second largest was in Pergamum. It had over 250,000 volumes of writing. That sounds large. It's enormous when you think of how they got books back then. You can't buy them on Amazon. You can't stock up from Amazon. So if you want a book, you have to go to the original book, wherever it is, and you have to copy it down and then bring it back to your library. If you want to check out a book at a library, you go to the Pergamum Library, you say, I'd like to check out this book on the shelf. They say, great, they pull it down. Come back in two months. I will copy it for you, and you can take a copy of it. That's how libraries worked back then. They had an enormous, massive library, and they would copy down all these different books. They copied so much, they would um, buy papyrus from Egypt to make all the copies of their books, and they bought so much papyrus from Egypt, Egypt and Rome started not liking each other. It was kind of a blockade. Rome says, stop buying papyrus from Egypt because we don't want to keep giving them money. They were giving them so much money. And Egypt said, fine, even if you asked us for it, we wouldn't give it to you. So there was a, a blockade. They were both very angry at each other. And so Pergamum said, we don't have papyrus. We need to figure out a way in which to continue this massive library growing. So they invented their own way of writing down text onto a piece of something. It couldn't be papyrus anymore. So they took animal skins. They fashioned them in some way, shape, or form. I don't know how they did it, but they did it, and it became what is known as parchment. They invented, Pergamum invented parchment. Pergamum, the, the word Pergamum, uh, is, if, if you vary it in the Greek, you get to the word parchment. So our word parchment actually comes from the word Pergamum. This is incredibly important because the New Testament was written down on parchment. Pergamum existed as a city before the time of the writing of the New Testament. And if the writing of the New Testament, if that time had happened before Pergamum was a city, there are a lot of people who believe it could not have been written down and mass-produced the way that it was because of Pergamum's influence in writing down, in making, inventing, and writing down on parchment. Pergamum was also heavily involved in idolatry. They were known for being open to any god. Just, if you have a god you want to worship him, bring that god over to us, him or her. There were uh, female gods that they were worshiping, goddesses. Uh, and they also joined their idolatry with their medicine. So they had this strange syncretism of uh, understanding how to be healed along with uh, idolatry. Um, they had a massive temple. They had a uh, their city was built around a huge mountain that had a massive temple on it dedicated to all sorts of different gods, but there were four main gods that they worshipped. They worshipped the four main gods of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, there was a temple to Athena, there was a temple to Asclepius, there was a temple to Dionysius, and there was a temple to Zeus. And there was a temple for emperor worship, just like we talked about with Smyrna. My favorite of all of these temples was the temple dedicated to Asclepius. Asclepius is... A goddess who has uh, snakes crawling around or slithering around her all over her arms and her body. And she's known for her healing. She would heal people. She's the god of healing. 
And so in the temple, you would go as a person in Pergamum to be healed. Listen to the way in which you would go to be healed by Asclepius. You'd go to her temple, and you'd spend the night. You'd just lay down on the floor, go to sleep, spend the night. That's okay. I'm up. Sign me up for that if I have a, a sickness. But the way in which you were healed on the floor were hundreds of snakes that they just let slither around. And so you slept on the ground. This is not a place that Indiana Jones would like to enjoy sleeping uh, on this floor. Sleep on the ground. And the way in which you got healed, just listen with discernment to how they made this up in a foolproof way. The way that you got healed is if you slept the entire night through without waking up and a snake touched you while you were sleeping without waking up. Do you hear how with just three seconds of taking a deep breath and listening to that and having discernment, you can see that was totally made up with the foolproof way of answering any objection to it, right? Because if you're healed, how do you know that it happened the way that they said it happened? Because if you, if you got healed walking out of this temple, you got healed because you slept the entire night and did not wake up and a snake touched you. If you don't get healed, they can say, well, I'm sorry, you weren't touched by a snake. And how do you know if you weren't touched by a snake if you slept the whole night through? Or if you woke up during the night, well, then you can't be healed. They had a great way of saying, foolproof, we know that you were healed because of uh, our belief in Asclepius. So imagine living in this city. I mean, I know we don't have a temple to Asclepius in Los Angeles, but we have similar realities in our culture and our context that Pergamum had as well. Now, that's our history lesson. That's the greeting. Let's move to the description of Christ. Number two, description of Christ. This is the back half of chapter 2, verse 12. The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. If you remember the description of Christ in Ephesus, the one who holds the stars in his hands, walks among the lampstands. I hold the churches in my hand. If you remember the, one, the description of Christ in Smyrna, uh, the first and the last, I know everything, I'm eternal, and the one who died but has uh, conquered death, written to people who were dying all day long. So here, we have a relevant description of who Jesus is for this specific church. He has the sharp two-edged sword. One archaeologist said it this way, in Roman estimation, the sword was a symbol of the highest order of official authority, with which the proconsulate of Asia was invested. The right of the sword was roughly equivalent to what we would call the power of life and death. So when he says, I have the sword in my hand, he owns the power of life and of death. In God's knowledge, in his power and in his sovereign word, he uses that to judge people. Obviously, uh, the sword of the Spirit is the word of God, so maybe this is a picture of the, the word doing the judgment. But the bottom line is, this would be a comfort to believers who are asking for God to bring about judgment upon their enemies. False believers, false converts, or those in their culture that were preaching a false gospel, worshiping Asclepius or Zeus or Athena. It's a comfort to those who are in Christ because Christ will judge. But it's also a dread because Christ will judge. It's a dread for those who are his enemies. And since we know Pergamum is struggling with confronting people in false doctrine, they had a struggle with fear of man. God opens up by saying, hey, Jesus holds a sword. Fear Jesus. 
don't fear man. Fear Christ, don't fear man. And again, since Pergamum was one of very few cities in the Roman Empire that had the power of the sword to enact capital punishment upon their citizens, Jesus said, yeah, your city owns the right to the power of the sword, but I'm the one who has the ultimate sword. In Greek, it's actually written to kind of give us pause as we read it. Literally in Greek, it says, these are the words of him who has the sword, the double-edged one, the sharp one. It's meant for us to slow down as we read it, almost to look at it glistening and shimmering in the sun, almost to, to run our hands along it, to feel its weight. He has the sword. That leads us to the description of what Jesus knows. Number three, uh, the, the declaration here of what Jesus knows. He says in verse 13, I know, and normally we see the words, your deeds. So far the pattern has been, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. I know the tribulation you're going through or the deeds that you're living out. Here he says, I know where you live. I know where you live. And this isn't like the, I know where you live and I'm coming to kill you. This is Jesus sympathetically saying, I know where you live and I know it's hard because you live where Satan dwells. You live where Satan's throne is, beginning of verse 13, and you live where Satan dwells, end of verse 13. You live in a very difficult place. That's what Jesus is saying. You live in a very hard place to live. Which again, I think he's saying that to us. I think he would absolutely say that to us today. Christ Bible Church I know that you live in a really hard place to live. Why does he say where Satan's throne is? There's a lot of ink spilled by commentators as to what this throne is. Maybe it's a reference to uh, Asclepius and the, uh, the temple to Asclepius and the throne that was in that temple. Maybe it's the altar to Zeus in Pergamum that was 120 feet by 112 feet in size located in the temple. Maybe that's the throne. Uh, maybe uh, it's the fact that in this city, there was Caesar worship happening constantly. Maybe it's all of them. I think it's fine to just say all of them. Satan owns this place. He is dwelling there. His throne is there. He's working in the false religious system. Every false religion is demonically inspired, demonically activated. And so since there's so much false religiosity happening in this city, Satan owns this place. And yet, this church is commended for holding fast to Christ. You live in a hard place, and sometimes the harder the place to live in, the tighter our grip on Christ is. You're, you're clinging to Christ. You're holding fast. You're not letting go. You're holding fast to my name, and you didn't deny my faith. I love that. My faith. It, faith is a gift from God. God grants us that gift, but it's a gift from God, and you didn't deny it. You didn't deny my faith. Then he says this, even in the days of Antipas. Antipas, we don't know who this man was. We know what his, his name means. Anti, anti is against, and pos is uh, everything or all. So his name means against everything, uh, against the world. How would you like to name your child that? Hey, let's name our kid Fight Everyone. That's what his name means. And yet he literally lived out his name. He stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with everyone in that city who was against him. And he said, I will de not deny the name of Christ or the faith that God has given to me. I won't deny him. 
We don't know who this man was. We have tradition, extra-biblical tradition, that tells us who this man was. Tradition, again, this isn't in the Bible. This is outside the Bible. Tradition tells us that John the Apostle, who's writing the book of Revelation, ordained Antipas as a pastor in the church in Pergamum. So he was the church's pastor. And another tradition that says, uh, speaks about his death says that he was martyred, he was killed by, uh, in, verse, or in year 81 to 96, somewhere in the reign of Emperor Domitian, which if you know the Emperor Domitian, he was a despicable, wicked emperor who hated Christians. And so he devised a way to kill Antipas that he hoped would stamp out the church in Pergamum. He built a brass bowl, put Antipas inside the brass bowl, and put that symbol of a false deity over a burning fire and roasted Antipas alive. Uh, the emperor had the, the bull fashioned in such a way that the bull's mouth would be funneled so that if Antipas were to scream inside of the bronze bull, the bull would sound like an animal fighting that they could all just glory in the fact that this brass bull is destroying Christianity. Tradition tells us, though, that Antipas didn't make a noise. He died peaceably inside of that bull. We don't know if those things are true. They're extra-biblical. They're not inerrant scripture. But we do know that this man was killed. That's what the Bible says. He is my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you. He's my witness, that word witness, that word is the Greek word marturo, which marturo is where we get martyr from. Martyr just means witness. It means somebody who witnesses a, a testimony, gives a testimony, testifies to something. It never originally meant somebody dying for Jesus Christ. But notice how this word became synonymous with dying for Christ, because if you as a Christian stood up and gave witness to who Jesus was, you would be killed. So this word, martyr, evolved into the word that we have today. Not witness, standing up and just saying this is who Jesus is, but somebody dying for their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I know these things. I was there with him. I saw him die. Kind of takes us back to what we learned about the church in Smyrna. He says, I know where you are. He was killed and you still live where Satan dwells. And then he's going to move to the criticism. But before he moves to the criticism, note what Jesus does not say at this point in his letter, and nowhere in this letter. He does not say, I know you live where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. It's a tough place to live. So move. Get out. I hear so many frightened Christians in Los Angeles. I hear so many terrified believers. We need to move somewhere else. LA is such a terrible, progressive, godless city. Yes, it is. Amen and amen, it is. So we need to go somewhere else where we can have some form of religious freedom. My favorite, that most people, most Christians will say, we need to move to, is Texas, right? Promised land, right? <laughs> Got to move to Texas. It'll become its own country eventually, secede from the Union. 
And then just, you know, three weeks ago, was it, in the news? Uh, it was a seven-year-old boy who biologically had a father uh, who said, my, my son's going to school, great kid, and the divorced mom, who is a stepmom to this boy, said, my son wants to be a girl. And they went to court. You all heard about this? They went to court over this issue. You can read about it. They went to court over this issue to, uh, ultimately, the judge ruled the first time, ruled in favor of the stepmom, not biologically related to this boy at all, seven years old, and said that she's right. He should be able to have uh, surgery, transition to become a woman, uh, and the biological father who says that shouldn't be happening needs to pay for it all. This happened in Texas, so it ain't the promised land, right? Uh, brothers and sisters, nowhere in this life is the promised land, right? We are citizens of heaven. And so Jesus does not say, I know you live in a difficult place, so move, get out of there. No, Jesus says, stay there, don't disengage. You need to be the church there, right? The church will shine so much more brightly in the midst of the darkness if you stay there and you witness. The darker that our city becomes, and it will become darker, but the darker that our city becomes, the brighter our light will be. The fiercer our persecution will be, yes, but the brighter our light will shine. We don't, need, we don't need to jump ship and get out of here because ultimately go anywhere and Satan's going to try and persecute you there as well. So sometimes the enemy is going to try and kill you. Sometimes the enemy is going to say, just leave. And sometimes the enemy is going to say, stay here, but blend in. Don't stand out. And that brings us to number four, the criticism. This is verses 14 and 15. The criticism. So, great commendation in verse 13. I know you're holding fast. I know you love me. I know you're not going to deny the faith. And stay there. Don't disengage from the culture. Don't disengage from what's going on in your surroundings. Stay there and grow and be a light for the gospel. But, verse 14, I have a few things against you. This isn't I have one thing against you. This is I've got a list. If God has a list for this church, just like our brother Marty said, listen as if you were sitting in this church when this parchment was being read. I mean, just picture, yeah, we, we pat yourself on the back. Oh, praise God, Antipas is with, with, with Jesus. He's in heaven. He's in a safer place. Praise the Lord for that. Amen and amen. But mm, that's not good. I have a few things against you. Ooh, just like Marty said, right? Oh, I'm probably talking about, you know, Billy, not, not me. Probably talking about these bad guys over here. No. Jesus is going to call out the leadership of the church. I have a few things against you because you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. And the second thing, verse 15, you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So split this out into two things. His criticism is that they hang on to and, and allow people to hold on to the teaching of Balaam and the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, the teaching of Balaam, uh, go back to Numbers 22 through 25. You can read that story. Many of you know that story in Numbers 22 with Balaam's donkey, right? The talking donkey that says, don't go. Uh, if you remember, 
Balak is the king of Moab. Balak doesn't like uh, Israel. Israel's trying to cut through Moab. They say, can we stay here? Balak says, no, don't stay here. Get out of my uh, country. And then Balak says, you know what? Let me hire a prophet, who is Balaam. Let me hire a prophet to curse Israel. Let's curse the people. And Balaam says, no. In fact, God says, don't do that. And Balaam says, I'm not going to do that. And then Balak takes this huge bag of money and says, how about now? And Balaam goes, yes, I will absolutely do that. In fact, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 through 16 tells us why Balaam did what he did, because he loved money. He just wanted money. So he gets this huge lump sum of money. Balak says, okay, go curse Israel. God says, fine, if you want to do it, you do it. Go your way. But you will not be able to say anything that I don't allow you to say. I'm going to put my words in your mouth. You're my prophet. So you remember the story. That's when he rides the donkey. Donkey says, we shouldn't be doing this. There's an angel. We shouldn't be going. Balaam says, stop it. And um, They go to a, a huge mountain. Balak says, here's all of the people of Israel. Balaam, can you please curse them? This happens numerous times. Balaam opens his mouth, and out comes a blessing. Every time Balaam goes to curse Israel, a blessing comes out of his mouth. And Balak keeps asking, wait, hang on, time out. I paid you money to curse these people. I paid you money to curse them. Why are you blessing them? Oh, I'm sorry, Balak. Let me do it again. Tries it again. Blessing. I mean, this is just a beautiful picture of God's sovereignty. If he wants his people to be blessed, there's nobody that can curse them. So finally, the last time, Balaam says, this obviously is not working. I'll still take the money because I have a way that you can curse the people. This is in chapter 31, verse 16. You can curse them without even saying a word. Just let your women intermarry with their men, uh, seduce them, in some sexual fashion, seduce them, marry them, get them to intermarry, and those men will follow after Moabite gods. Remember, we talked about Moabite gods, right? We talked about, in the book of Ruth, we talked about Ruth's background. They'll follow after Chemosh. They'll follow after the Moabite god. So Balaam says, I'm sorry, I can't curse them with my mouth and my lips, but I know how God will curse them. If they turn away from him, involved in sexual immorality, involved in intermarrying and pursuing other gods. And lo and behold, that's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. Uh, Jude verse 11 talks about this, um, an intermarrying with people, a, a uh, sexual, Im- sexual immorality, um, idolatry following after idols. We have that. That's why 2 Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that marrying a non-believer, if you're a professing believer, isn't right. It's not wise because their God becomes your God. Uh, unless God in His grace uh, helps you to remain steadfast and strong. Don't be friends with the world. James chapter 4, verse 4 says, Worldliness uh, is adultery uh, in God's eyes, and it's dead wrong. And so Balaam told Balak, just put this stumbling block. My Bible says stumbling block. That's the Greek word uh, scandal on. Put a scandal in front of him. It's a trap. It's the part of the trap where the bait is placed, which when it's touched, it triggers the entire mechanism to close on its prey. So just put something there. It'll trap them. And you can see, Jesus says, they're holding to that teaching. They're holding to that stumbling block. They're eating things sacrificed to idols. So they are pursuing idolatry. They're committing acts of immorality, just like Balaam told Balak to tell their women to do. 
They're eating things sacrificed to idols. This is different than Corinth, if you remember. The eating things sacrificed to idols in Corinth. Remember, Paul says, you can totally do that. That's totally fine. An idol's not a thing. Uh, you don't need to worry about it. And it's really good meat. But you remember, these are different things because back then in Corinth, uh, they just brought meat in. They would offer it. The priests of that false god would offer it before the false god, before the idol. Then they'd take it out and they'd sell it. There was kind of a don't ask, don't tell meat policy of, you know, we don't know if it was sold uh, from the temple. We don't know if it was uh, sold in the marketplace or something. We don't know. It's just really good meat. And Paul said, totally fine. If it causes your brother to sin, don't do it. But if it doesn't, enjoy it. This is different. This eating things sacrificed to idols, eating the meat sacrificed to idols, this in Pergamum, the only way that you got this meat was if you brought a sacrifice to an idol, some form of incense or some form of uh, a sacrifice, an offering to give to the idol, and then you would get meat in return. That was the method of paying to get the meat. Therefore, if you had meat on your table in Pergamum, you sacrificed something to an idol. Everybody knew that. So that's why Jesus says, you're letting people do that. This isn't an issue of conscience. This is you bow down to an idol to get the meat. Not allowed to do that. Then he says, verse 15, so too you also have some who in the same way. These are those conjunction words that our brother Marty was talking about this morning. These are those words that connect. So the Nicolaitans are saying something similar to Balaam and to Balak and that whole teaching. We've covered the Nicolaitans before. You can go back to Acts chapter 6. You can see that Nicholas started as a godly man. He was one of the first deacons to be appointed by the church. And then his followers began promoting a heresy that said, if you want to become a Christian, you don't need to repent of sin. You don't need to turn from anything. You can follow Jesus and live in sexual immorality, live in idolatry. You don't have to give up your other gods. Just enjoy Christ along with everything else. That's wrong. But you notice, and this is where you have to just read slowly and carefully, notice that Jesus does not condemn the people who are doing those things, the people who are following Balaam and the people who are following the Nicolaitans. Who does he condemn? He condemns the people who are leading the church and in the church allowing those people to do that. The condemnation is not dealing with the false teaching itself. Everybody knew it was false teaching. The condemnation specifically is that the church knew it but tolerated it allowed it to happen. Going back to what Marty said this morning, this is where I think the leaders of the church would have said, yeah, exactly. That, what those people are doing is wrong. Yes. And Jesus says, I'm not worried about them. I'm worried about you allowing them to live in sin, knowing that it's wrong, knowing that it's something that they shouldn't be involved in. The condemnation is not over the doctrinal waywardness of the minority, the condemnation is the doctrinally nonchalant nature of the majority. Eh, they can do what they want to do. The so what attitude of the leadership in the church. There were some in the church who held these two things, the teaching of the Nicolaitans and the teaching of Balaam, and the church did nothing about it. Why, why would they do nothing about it? Maybe they thought it wasn't really that bad. Maybe they compared the teaching that they were giving in the church to what was actually happening and thought, well, this will help and we don't need to confront them. Ultimately, I think it boils down to the fear of man. They just didn't want to have that difficult conversation. 
So what are we supposed to do then? When we have people in our midst that are clearly following wrong teaching, how do we act? What are we supposed to do? Well, again, Lord willing, we will talk about that in great detail next week. But for this week, I I just want to ask your heart, if you follow Jesus and you love Jesus, I want to ask you, what do you compromise on? This church compromised in certain ways about teaching and just said, you know, we're not going to deal with that. We're not going to confront for whatever reason. We'll dialogue about this more next week. But where do we compromise? What do we allow in our church that we compromise about? How do we confront people in love? We don't like confronting. How do we do it with grace, with compassion? How do we call people out in their sin? And lastly, brothers and sisters, are you prepared for the days ahead to be called intolerant, to be called a bigot, to be called all sorts of things, falsely accused? Are you prepared to go through that for the name of Christ? Lovingly, graciously speak the truth in love, yes, and we'll talk about this next week, but are you prepared to go through that? Because just like Pergamum, I think Satan dwells in a very real way in his presence here in L.A. And Jesus says, don't disengage. Engage with the gospel and stand up for Christ. Father, we thank you so much for your word that is so relevant. And once again, we look at a calling for us that is beyond what we can do. So many questions even bounced around in our minds right now. How do we do this correctly? How do we confront? How do we do that in love? What are we supposed to do about lesser things? Are there things that we don't have to confront? What, how do we live this out? We're going to fall short. God, I, I pray that there would be no sense of fear in, in our church about falling short, because we're going to. We're going to mess up. We're going to do this incorrectly. Whether compromising and allowing it to happen or whether just being too harsh and are confronting and rebuking, we're going we're gonna to miss the mark. And maybe even sometimes we're going to miss the mark of clinging to Christ in those moments, in the culture that we live in, thinking, you know what, I can just acquiesce to what they're doing. I, I, can, I don't have to stand up. I don't, I don't have to stand out. And we start to compromise. And so, Jesus, we, we want to conclude our time clinging to our only hope, which is you. Our faith will falter. We don't have to live in that fear. We can live in the knowledge that we will fall time and time again. And that's where your grace and your precious clinging to us holds us fast.